Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I am joined by Professor James Tooley, and we are discussing his book, Really Good Schools, Global Lessons for High-Caliber, Low-Cost Education. Hey, James, welcome. It's great to be here, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. So there is a common story that most people believe, and the story is that private schools are often good schools, often high-quality schools, but they're expensive and they're for rich kids. And you've made a career out of demonstrating that that is not the case, that it's not only not the case, but it's not the case in the places you would most expect it to be the case in in very poor parts of the developing world. And you've written some really interesting and really great stuff about this topic. So before we get into the substance of it, I'm wondering if you could give a little biographical background about how you got into this line of research. Yes. Okay. And and as you say, it wasn't that I deliberately went out to disprove that uh, that that theory, that idea of what private schools are all about, it was just the way my my work developed. My first job was as a mathematics teacher in Zimbabwe. I had experience in Zimbabwe, and then a little bit later in South Africa, and uh, and then my PhD thesis be- became really a justification for. Um, private education or really questioning why government was involved in education. So my background, I had this experience in Zimbabwe and South Africa. My PhD was there um, saying, you know, government has no role in education. And I was asked then to do a, quite a big study for the International Finance Corporation, looking at private education around developing world, the developing world. Not, And this was just a purely private education for the elite, for, for whatever that everyone believed was, was just the case at the time. And doing some consultancy around that work, and then I decided I wanted to see for myself what was happening in the poorest slums. I was working in Hyderabad in south-central India at the time. I wanted to see what was happening in the poorest slums. Went into the slums on, on a day off from the consultancy around the looking at the elite private schools, and I found a low-cost private school, uh, a school in a building, in a, in, a, in a residential house, teaching quite a few kids. And then I found another such school, another such school, all part of a federation of 500 uh, low-cost private schools. And this was my epiphany. This was my moment of epiphany that I realised there's this is extraordinary phenomenon of low-cost schools that was there. And I, I then I then managed to, to get research funding from different bodies to look at this phenomenon around the world. And no doubt you'll ask me about that in, a, in due course. But it was really my experience as a school teacher in education, then my thesis, my PhD thesis, questioning the role of government in education. Those two factors led me to get this rather nice research grant from the International Finance Corporation. And that then led me slowly and slowly to discover, obviously discover for me, discover for the West, not discover the people involved, but nonetheless to discover for the West that the poor, many of the poor were going to low cost private schools. And this phenomenon of low cost private schools has been my life's work. Were there 
precursor Western researchers that talked about this at all? Why do you think this phenomenon has been so underknown to Western scholarship? There was one man uh, who belonged to the Freeman Foundation had written about some of these sort of schools that came up under apartheid in South Africa. And they were, they were sort of, yeah, they were sort of a bit like the low-cost private schools. He called them the, was it the factory schools or the office schools. I'm, I'm being honest, I don't think anyone had written about this phenomenon in detail, there was a, there was an occasional allusion to to them in one or two people's writings. But it, I mean, when I started this research and when it started becoming well known, several people came to me and said, um, "We didn't have it." You know, we in India, this was we'd been traveling through India and we'd seen this phenomenon. We'd seen now what we know to be something special. We didn't have any language for it. We didn't have any concepts for it, and so we didn't we didn't mention it. You know. And that, 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 that's quite remarkable. But I think more, more, more fully, the you had to, you've got to go into the poor slums to find this thing. And many people, even in development, don't necessarily go into the poor slums. They go and meet the people in the government. The government tells them, "Let's come and see the government schools, the public schools over here." And um, you know, no one gets to see what's really happening. It is it is a curious phenomenon, Chris. And I, I'm you know. I'm exceedingly grateful that I had eyes to see this thing, but it is strange. Others didn't. It is strange. I agree. Yeah, I suppose there wasn't exactly publicly available data or databases you could go and find the lists of these schools. I mean, this is not just a book of you synthesizing existing research. You've been leading original field research teams on the ground in the developing world to discover these and catalog them. Can you tell us about what that research process actually looks like, like on the ground, day to day. You you describe it vividly in your book, and it's, it's quite entertaining in addition to like your actual thesis. Um, can you say a yeah. little bit about what that yeah. looks like? Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. Um, there are, there are no there were there are and were no databases showing all these schools because many of them, you know, possibly a majority, certainly a significant minority, are unregistered. That so they're not on any government or international agency radar so the the very first thing to do any research in these areas is to actually go out and find out how many schools there are and the, the research process um literally was first of all was me going into the places i never wanted to send any researcher into a place that i felt was was not safe enough for me now you might think that's, that's strange because people from the local community might well find this place safer that i didn't but nonetheless i always went in the places i also enjoyed that experience I, you know i'll be quite honest and i can reflect back on my life i enjoyed that excitement of going into some of the poorest slums on this planet into some of the you know poor mountains and you know rural areas and other parts being the only foreigner had gone into these parts and then seeing what i would find and finding something remarkable. So I did enjoy that that part of it. But yeah, nevertheless, I would go in there, I would spend a day or two finding, ah, this, yeah, this place clearly is ripe for my research. There are these low-cost private schools. I would do some initial sort of working out what the what the questions, you know, we, we had a questionnaire and survey instruments, but they had to be adapted for each country and each setting. So I'd make some of those initial adaptations. Um, and then I would go to the local university, go to the local, um, uh, you know, some NGOs, uh, whatever they're called nowadays, the uh, charities um, and think tanks, and just try and find 
someone to help me bring get a team of volunteers. And then we would just simply go into the area with our clipboards, our paper, you know, in those days, clipboards, questionnaires, survey instruments, go in there and ask people, you know, where they went to school, go and find these schools, you know, hidden away and then catalogue them. And that was then the building of the database, which everyone expects to, <laughs> when you're doing research to be already there. But that was the building of the database. And then after that, we would then do our, our stratified random sampling and send more researchers in to do surveys, you know, tests and standardized tests and so on. But I think, you know, for me, that experience of going into these places was was a wonderful experience. But it was also good because many of these entrepreneurs who had created these schools they hadn't felt they'd been appreciated before from, you know, outside. They were doing a good work in the slums, but governments, once they know about them, try and close them down. International agents ignore them. So it was a great experience going to these places and saying, look, I think what you're doing is wonderful. I think what you're doing, and did you know it's also happening in country, in, in Liberia, in Sierra Leone, it's also happening in Nigeria, it's also happening all over, and you've got similar problems, similar issues, and, you know, this... This feeling of being part of a movement was exciting to people as it was to myself. Did you ever get any attention from organizations that run? I mean, there there are like indices like the like the Human Development Index and and other kinds of places where they rank educational attainment. And you're saying there's all these schools and children who are in unregistered schools. I, I got to imagine a lot of prominent indices of education are. Uh, not as accurate as they could be because this giant network of unregistered private schools doesn't get included in them. Did you ever get any attention from people wanting to update international education indices based on your findings? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a really good point. And and, and I, I just became incredibly skeptical, as I still am to this day, incredibly skeptical of any figure that says private school attendance in the developing world is 25% of the total or, or whatever. Um the figures are wrong because they don't include these unregistered schools. To, and everyone became aware of this. So the, the, the good news is people are now aware that this phenomenon exists and that it's significant. And and, and how significant, Chris, is, is worth emphasising this point in that the, the poor parts of Kampala and Uganda, 84% of kids go to these private schools. In Lagos State, in total, 75% of kids go to these schools. Um, and, and, and in India, it's probably quite similar. In rural India, 30% of kids go to these schools. So rural areas, I think that figure of 25 to 35% is probably about, about right. Um, in urban areas, 65 to 85% is probably about right. This is this is a massive phenomenon. It's not you know me finding one or two little schools hidden away. No, it's a massive phenomenon. So everyone's aware of it. Of course, the rec the the data that still comes forward from the, those sort of agencies you described still can't include data on this. But at least people are aware when I say you know it's it it underestimates the percentage of private education. People say yeah you're you're probably right. I am right. What are the major reasons that these schools do go unregistered? So there the are various reasons. I mean, one is if if you are if you are registered or recognised. You've got, you know, it costs money. It costs a lot to do, and that, and that's true in this country, in England, where I am speaking from now, as it as it is in America, many states and elsewhere. So you've got to pay registration fees. You've got to then satisfy the regulations, and the regulations typically go against 
the thriving of the low-cost private schools. You know, a typical reg regulation might say that teachers have to be paid a certain amount, as they are in the public schools, the government schools, and they've got to be trained in the same way as they are in the public schools, the government schools. That alone would push these schools out of the market if they could, if they had to do that. So those, in a sense, are the honest reasons why schools might not be registered. Um, and then typically a school might not be registered for five, ten years while it builds up its, um, you know, builds up its strength and so on so it can then afford the additional cost, which is might seem quite small, but it's quite a lot to a school. Um, so those are, in a sense, the honest reasons. The, the other sort of reasons are typically in the countries I've been working in, you know, the inspection officials, the inspectors, the government officials are not particularly honest. They demand bribes and so on. And if you're unregistered, you're hidden away from all that, you can still be approached by, you know, someone can still find you, as I found the schools. But nonetheless, um, if you're registered, recognised, the inspector will call and the inspector will demand a bribe before, you know, past, you know, signing you off for the next year or two. So there's, you know, there's there's honest reasons and, and other reasons. I mean, some of the some of the schools perhaps are like this, these sort of micro schools that I've discovered in America, where they just ideologically don't want to be on any government's radar. So that would also be possible ideologically in a loose sense. Maybe you see the government not as your friend, but as your enemy. One of the, one of the first proprietors spoke to me, uh, and I always remember the, the, his phrase. He says, sometimes government is the obstacle of the people. And um, you know, so you wouldn't necessarily want to be registered because government might intrude in all sorts of ways, push you in ways that you didn't want to go. Did you ever have proprietors of these schools nervous to talk to you, fearing that you might be uh, some kind, somehow a representative of uh, uh, people they didn't want knowing about them? Yeah, and 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 it's it's. I suppose as I grew in confidence in the market, I mean, certainly in the first year or two when I was in schools, I would be very nervous that people would be suspicious of me, and I would understand that and they definitely were you know the, the, the very the very first low-cost private school i found in hyderabad they were very suspicious of me and quickly moved me on to another school um and uh and then uh, you know as i got to know the federation it, uh, you know people became less suspicious as I, you know I, I think now you know my confidence my you know now and i've lost 10 15 years my confidence was such that i was able to go into schools knowing that you know i had something positive a positive message a positive you know i i did mobilize a huge amount of resource in terms of loans and scholarships and um teacher training and so on so you know i was able to tell them look i'm not only your friend i can mobilize resources and I've also got experience and a track record of lobbying government or being involved in organizations and federations which start and which lobby government. So, um, so you know, there, there was that. But, but you know, it, it, is, it is a genuine point. And, and in China, so, so I did you know, one of the chapters in The Beautiful Tree talks about the work in China. And in China, in, in the beautiful tree, I did anonymize all the schools, the towns, the people I worked with. Because the beautiful did... tree, for those who don't know, is the kind of the precursor book to the one we're talking about. Yeah, two thousand nine. Two thousand and nine. Yes, and it was sort of the first first major book on this sector at all, the low cost private sector, and uh, the first book that I wrote on that. We're talking about really good schools, which is really the sequel to the beautiful tree. Part one is the sequel, and then part two and three. Take this further into America and uh, uh, look at the implications for America, really. Um, yeah, so I was, 
Uh, yeah, it, it's it's at one's right to be nervous. In certain settings, one is still nervous that the authorities will do the wrong thing when they hear about these schools. You describe over and over again in this book, like going to different places and being told, even sometimes by locals, I think, no, that this phenomenon doesn't exist here. You're not going to find it. Maybe you found it in that country, but you're not going to find it in this country. It's too poor. Or this place is too war-torn. And continually you find them. Did you ever experience any letdowns with finding this phenomenon? So, so, so you're absolutely right. And it, it was people who should know, people at the Department of Education, people who were in think tanks, sympathetic think tanks. They should have known about this phenomenon. And it wasn't, it, it was typically just because everyone knows. And, you know, some of the listeners now will still think private education is about the elite or the privileged. Everyone knew that at the time. Everyone knew that. I'm doing my, my scare quotes here. And um, and so me looking for low cost private schools, private schools for the poor, which just seemed to be, you know, crazy. Um, but always now, did, what you're saying is, was there ever a letdown? Um, so, so 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 I suppose certain countries weren't quite that model. So the model I described earlier, where you had a gr- large majority of children in the urban areas in the private schools, that was true in the South Asian and the sub-Saharan, mid-sub-Saharan countries, Western, East and Central Africa. Um, it wasn't true in South Africa. In South Africa, there were fewer of these low-cost private schools. So I always found them. I haven't been to a country, I don't think, where I, I haven't found them. Um, but sometimes they're not they weren't as widespread as others. And it was probably to do with a range of factors, including you know, how bad the, the public schools were, yeah, how, how bad they were, and, and, and so on. Um, Central America was also not the same sort of flood of these schools. Or again, I found I found them in each of these countries. China, rural China, not as many, but sometimes they were there. Yeah. But I don't think I've been to a, ever been to a place where there were none. In the developing world in general, is it similar to the way it is in wealthy countries? I mean, is education typically free and compulsory or at least largely subsidized and compulsory? Is that the common model around the world? So it's certainly common for ha- to have, um, I think you call it elementary education, um, up, up to sort of, you know, before junior high school. That would typically be compulsory and typically free um, in the countries I've examined, yeah. So given that's, that that's the case and that that option is there, why do very poor parents, despite having this option, send their kids nevertheless to a private school that does cost them money? Yeah. And, and that was the central mystery. You know, that was, that's been the central mystery of all this work. Why, you know, I, I meet the poor parents and I started this work 20 odd years ago. Why are you sending your child to a private school when the government school, the public school is free and you might even get extra benefits? And to so, be clear, we're talking about the poorest of the poor, right? You're talking about globally poor people, not poor for, for the standards of Britain or America, two, three dollars exactly. a day or less. These are the poor people on the planet. They are what you know. They they are not, as you say, just relatively poor compared to America or Britain. These are absolutely poor people living in the, the slums of Monrovia and Liberia. Are probably the poorest on this planet, and that's the sort of people I'm talking about. Similar slums in Nigeria and Sierra Leone, South Sudan, Somalia, and so on. Um, the reasons that parents were given, and I've, and I've got another reason that I, I sort of found from the research, really. Um, but, you know, parents would say in the government school, I'm using, you, you, you understand there's a difference in some of the language. So when I use, I use government, state and public schools synonymously um, to mean those run by government um, as opposed to private. 
there are different language, different ways these are used around the world. Um, but they they would say in the government schools our children are abandoned. That would be one thing, you know. And I, you know, I'd go and see these government schools, and it was true. You know, the the teachers would not be present. If they were present, they would be doing something else and getting their kids to do either a minimum amount of work supervised by one of the the, the children themselves, or they would be doing household tasks for them. Um, so in the government schools, the children are abandoned or there would be abuse going on in the government schools. There would be certainly would be um, corporal punishment. And that was not common in the private schools? It was less common. It was less common. It, it certainly existed, but it was it was less common in the private schools. Of course, in these all, all countries, it was illegal, but it was much more common in the in the in the public schools. Um, so parents would say their children are abandoned and then they would also say in the they use words to this effect in the private school if the teacher doesn't turn up or you know the teacher is accountable to 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 me through me paying fees if the the school is not doing well you know then they'll lose people like me as a parent and therefore the the school will go under hey you describe the, all these schools where te- the large majorities of the teachers just don't show up or show up for an hour and leave. Yeah. There's so many experiences like that. And as I said, I've described so many in the book, but you know, I mean, one example was, you know, that horrible one in, in, in the, in the Gujarat fishing village. Um, and this is just a typical thing, but you know, so I got, got talking to the, the fishermen and the fishmonger wives there, um, you know, where do you send your children? They send them to the local government school. What's it like? Well, my daughter has just learned to count up to five or write the letter. You know, that's all she's done in three, five years. Um, and you know what? Once I went to complain, I went to complain because I, you know, I, I see the teachers arrive late. I see them leave early. They live in the distant town. They come out here by public transport. They're always late. And I went to complain once and, you know, you can imagine the teachers who are, they see themselves in the public schools, they see themselves a cut above the, the poor that they're dealing with. You can see them seeing the uh, the teacher, uh, the, the fisherman arrive, this dirty, smelly fish, illiterate fisherman coming to complain to them. You know, you can see their, their response and they called the police and had him arrested and thrown in prison for, you know, daring to sort of question them. But... That's just so ha- that happens so often. The teachers are asleep. The teachers are doing something else. The teachers not present. I've catalogued it. Many people have catalogued it, and it's crystal clear. If you know, we, we go tomorrow to the, the one of the public schools in these on the adjacent to these poor areas, we'll see that sort of abandonment going on, and walk into one of the private schools. You'll see active learning. You'll see the teachers energetically teaching. Um, you'll see the kids energetically learning. You work. It's chalk and cheese, you know, and it's all to do with accountability and to do with paying fees. So a big part of the answer is just that it's cheap and it's better. Yeah. So it's affordable. So remember, we I call them low cost private schools. We're accepting that. But to a poor parent, it's not low cost. You know, you you have to scrimp and save to afford it. So so I, I was going to say, so there are reasons that our research. First of all, the research has uncovered through standardized uh, testing um, that the children attending the private schools do better than those in the in the public schools. Not surprising, but it's you know it is now well documented that happens. And there's been some very good studies that have used you know randomized controlled trials and so on that have demonstrated that. 
Um, so that they are better. But the second thing is about affordability. So we typically think of government schools as free, don't we? You, you know, you private schools charge fees, government schools are free. And it's not that simple if, if you're poor, if you're anyone, really. Um, so first of all, in the poor areas, some of the government schools do charge Ill- illegal or semi-legal levies, you know, a building levy, a development levy, um, <laughs> a teaching levy, you know. So there are there are some payments to be made, but they're, they're not as much as the private schools, that's for sure. But then if, you, if you're poor, you have to meet the extra costs, the other costs of education, whether in public or private. And, you know, you have to pay for shoes, you have to pay for uniform, you have to pay for books, you have to pay for transport. And typically the private schools are small and in the communities themselves. The public school will probably be some distance away. So you have to pay for transport. And when you add all together, so the fees in the private, the levies in the government, plus all the extra costs, we've, we found a figure that's fairly typical across all these studies, that the cost to a parent of sending a child to a government school is about 75% of the cost of sending to a private school. So it's it's not nothing to send the, to the government school. Now, it is definitely more. You know, that figure is definitely more, and it can make the difference between, between being able to afford it and not being able to afford it. But nonetheless... The calculation to a parent is not that ah oh, this is free and this is this is not free. There are costs involved in both, and the costs are not hugely dissimilar to an outsider, at least. And when you say that they're affordable, I mean they're not necessarily cheap to these people. But you're you're talking about I think you give a figure of something like ten percent of the income of you know a very very poor family. So it's you can still compare that to you know what it might cost if you were wealthier, yeah. but it's that's 10% is a healthy chunk, but it's something that you could prioritize even if you're poor. Yes. And, and so, so I, I've read the equivalent figure in, in America, for instance, that if the, the, the families that send their children to, to the typical sort of private schools that we all know exist, um, I think they would need to spend about 6% of their income per child to send to these schools so, so that's the ballpark figure a richer person uses and so the the, the research that we did and I published it this in the oxford review of education so you know it's, it's a it's a decent study um suggested that uh and this is actually how i defined low-cost private schools in the end that for a family on the the internationally recognized poverty line they could spend 10 percent of their income on sending all of their children to private school than the schools they went, they could afford to send their children to I, I defined as low-cost schools, okay? And typically, there'll be another 10% of their income on, on the extra costs I described. So, yes, it, it's a lot, 10 or 20%, but it's not, it's not totally unaffordable. But the important point is, or an, an important point is, there will be some who, are, who can't afford it but they can't really afford to send their children to government school either, you know, it's, uh, because of these additional costs are described. I assume that even in these countries, in these developing countries, the goal of universal education is never actually met. So we shouldn't be comparing these low-cost private schools to this perfect standard that is never actually met of universal education of children. I mean, it's not met in the first world either. No. But interestingly enough, I mean, the places I've done most of the 
studies, or sorry, the place that most studies have been done on this, Lagos State in Nigeria, there is almost universal schooling. Um, there's about 5% who are out of school. It, this is this, this was a, this a household survey across the whole of Lagos State. About 5% are out of school, um, but 25% were in government schools and 70% were in private schools. So the combination of private, public does near, lead to nearly universal education. And I bet that's a sort of similar proportion to, it could even be higher than the proportion in different American urban areas where you've got, everyone is technically in school, I guess, but you've got a, a large, a high truancy rate, high sort of out of school measure. I doubt if it's lower than 5%, probably could be even higher. So as you say, you're absolutely right. We mustn't ever compare what's going on in these schools with some idealistic, uh, you know, utopian model, which doesn't exist. That's not helpful at all. Hey, everyone, this is Chris Kaufman. And I just want to let you know that each one of you are super special, precious snowflakes that I appreciate to bits for listening to my show. I love doing this show so much, but it is still a small show. And if you want to help me out a little bit, I would greatly appreciate it if you would just recommend the show to a friend, maybe two friends. Um, but every little bit counts, especially when you are a small, new and growing show, as I am. So if you want to help me out, that is the simplest thing you can do. And I will not bug you any longer right now. Back to the show. Can you talk about what you call like the seven dimensions of, of this low cost private education? These are some standards you are holding this form of education to to say whether or not this is a model that is fit for a society at large. Yeah, and, and and those seven dimensions, you know, we can dismiss a couple, we can have five, we can, some people might want to cover more, but they, they would be the dimensions which, you know, if I came to you saying in area X, there's this amazing private sector market-driven spontaneous order solution um, that, that, that solves the problems arising in this area X, you know, you'd be entitled to ask me these roughly seven questions about, about the area. And, and so, 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 Two of them would be, um, and, and that's why I think you know we can ask these questions about low-cost private education. So two of them would be to do with scalability and sustainability. They're really important questions. I'm not doing them the order they are in the book, but these sure. are two important questions. And 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 why are they important? Because obviously you've got to be scalable if you've got any chance of reaching the majority of, in this case, children, the majority of children who are out of school or in, in, in indifferent schools. So you've got to be scalable and sustainable. You've got to be sustainable because there's no point finding a solution which depends on you and me raising charitable funds, which will dry up in a year or two, and then the whole solution is dead and buried. So sustainability and scalability, I call them, I think, the holy grails of anything, any development issue. And um, they are met in this area. The majority of the schools are run as small businesses, and therefore they don't require any philanthropy. They don't require any subsidy, and they don't get any subsidy from state or international agencies. So that model is sustainable, and um, it's scalable with the figures I've given you. You know, if you've, if you've got the majority of kids going to these schools already, including the majority of poor kids, then it's scalable. So sustainability and scalability is very important. I, I think you'd also want to know that these um, these schools at this option is at least leading to, is at least not undermining the standards, the educational standards um, elsewhere, but hopefully is, is better than um, standards elsewhere. So you want them to be um, 
they want you want them to show higher achievement again these these low-cost schools are showing higher achievement than the government schools and um you'd want them to be fair to girls for example this is again something or fair to different ethnic minorities or minority groups in general you'd want them to be fair on those levels and again these schools are meeting those areas so that, that those are some of the areas that are of concern if you if there's a particular one of the seven you'd like me to address i, I will as well yeah you raise this possibility in the book, or not this possibility, the actuality of this phenomenon, and then you kind of anticipate the kinds of questions and objections that someone might have. Well, okay, sure, they're going there, but are these schools any good? So, you know, yeah. quality is one of them. So maybe maybe talk about that. Are these schools any good? Maybe Maybe they're on par a little better in terms of basic educational measures, but are there other features of quality that are also important and and if so, how do these schools match up with the government yeah, schools? It's, it's a really, really important qu question on, on quality. And, and as you, you say, the way the first way we look at that, if we can, is to do some sort of comparison tests, test scores in um, you know, mathematics, language, and so on. And, and there's no doubt that the evidence shows these schools are better. I mean, statistically, there are problems with things like selection bias and so on. But, you know, the, the studies that have, there are some really good studies out there which show the same as the less good studies that these schools are better. And that's not surprising. But, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't particularly like standardised tests. And I would, in a sense, I much rather would trust the parents who don't depend on standardised tests and they depend on a range of informal parameters if you like um and they will say things like well that school is better than this one you know so there have been comparisons between the low-cost private schools as well as comparisons between the low-cost private schools and the public schools they'll say well this school is better because clearly you can hear the kids they're talking in english english is often the the lingua franca of many of these countries we're working in the official language they're talking and therefore are hugely important for development for progress for social mobility the parents will say clearly these kids are talking in english amongst themselves much better than my kid who's going to another school so that must be that must mean the quality is better there or they will just they'll ask their kids and the kids will tell them the teacher didn't turn up today you know um and they'll go and find out why the reason for that is, and you know, if there's a good reason, that's fine. If there's not a bad, if there's a bad reason, well, that's a, that's a big, big, big negative thing against the school. Or they'll just look at the the way the books are. We say in England, we say marked. I think you say checked to you when the the teacher comes yeah. along, and they'll say, well, clearly the teacher's giving more attention to to the books here, um, to the to the children's work than than they are in that school. So that's that's an informal thing. And then, you know, there there are then very important things. And there aren't many tests done in the countries I've been working in, but there are tests done internationally on this. And things like, you know, civic values, things like dem democratic awareness, you know, these sort of very important social aspects of what we need from education. There are studies, not in the countries I'm talking about, but there are studies from America and elsewhere, which show private education is better for these sort of social things than the than the government schools and and those are very important as well so standard scores yes interesting values that parents want you know the ability to sit down and work the ability to postpone the need for gratification the character building and then these social skills uh, sorry the social awareness the values of social values democracy and so on in on all these levels the private sector typically does better than 
government education and that's hugely to, to to be applauded so yeah when you look at these schools the quality is clearly there and it's clearly better one message you you come away with from reading this book is i think a similar message you might come away with from any kind of decentralized free market position on any kind of industry or good or service is that you know the the flexibility and the direct feedback and accountability to the customer who is the parent in this case and to some extent the the child but mostly the parent especially for younger kids creates a lot of flexibility and dynamism in this market and you can't always you know assess that with one big standardized test even though in in regular markets some standardized measures and tests are are a feature of regular markets but they're customer driven rather than say state driven yeah, so yeah. that's one of the benefits of this kind of program is the decentralization yeah. and dynamism of it but in your research doing this, do you, did you come away with any kind of general conclusions or thoughts on specific pedagogical methods? What is more or less effective? Or is it just that in the, this kind of private model, these different schools can experiment with various different things and there's not maybe one method that's obviously more effective? So certainly that's, that is a conclusion of mine. And, and, and what I say in, in the book, Really Good Schools, you know, education is, is essentially contested. It's not just, you know, it happens to be consensus here, but these differences can be ironed out in due course. It is essentially contested because one's view of the good life, of the good society, of human flourishing, they are intimately linked back to our views on education. You know, the the two are, there's an, an umbilical cord between them. So, you know, any view you have on education, including pedagogy, pedagogical methods, um, including curriculum, will inevitably somewhat reflect what your view of the good society is. So in the end, my conclusion is precisely what you said, that there are various ways that suit some children better than others. There are various ways that are worth exploring and so on, and the various curricula, various pedagogical techniques. However, what, what, what I do talk about in the book, Really Good Schools, and you know, I just want to reinforce now is, for poor parents in particular, they're not typically in the mood for experimenting. They don't want to be used as as guinea pigs, as you know, experimental fodder for new ideas on education and so on. And 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 so typically the sort of schools that I'm looking, I've been looking at um, in the low-cost private school space in developing countries, they would be quite traditional and quite similar in, in many ways. Also, for a poor parent, the only show in town for your children is often the the state end of school examination, the state curriculum. And so you're not you you want to see how well your children do on that, because that's the you know, that's the sort of thing that you you know about and you don't want to see them experimenting with other sorts of curriculum and so on. So it, it, as I say in the book, this is and, and you must understand this correct way, it was always disappointing to me to to see this. It's not that I was ever disappointed with a single school doing this sort of thing, but nonetheless, I would like to have seen more innovation. But I completely understand why poor parents don't want their children to be experimented on um, in this way. However, typically in the low-cost private schools, you will see experimentation away from the government curriculum. And that would be in terms of what goes on in elementary school Typically, the government curriculum is too packed with stuff, you know, social studies, um, environmental studies, all these extra things. And the parents typically want more on mathematics, more on English or, or 
and or other languages, because they're aware that if you've got the basic found, uh, foundation in English and mathematics, then you can do anything. You can do any of the curriculum subjects, um, but you do need that. So it's, the pedagogical techniques would largely be similar. However, as the market develops, and obviously this is when you turn to perhaps what's happening in America now and so on, as the market, the spontaneous order develops, and it will explore different ways of doing education. And as an educator, that would be very, very exciting for me to monitor and follow that. That makes sense to me that the poor parents especially would not be, as you said, in the mood for a lot of experimentation. It seems like in normal markets, like Hayek, Friedrich Hayek often talked about wealthy people as being able to be kind of lifestyle and economic trailblazers or experimenters. If you're wealthy, you can afford to try out a weird new product. Maybe it works. If it works and it gets successful among the wealthy who have money to burn, then it starts to become popular among the masses. But if you're one of the masses with limited money, you are a little bit more nervous to potentially waste your money on a weird new product, a weird new gadget that's going to suck. And same thing might be true of education. You're like, I don't know if this is perfect, but I know that this method of teaching kids more or less works. And I'd rather, you know, I've got a stronger loss aversion with with this little money. Yeah, I think absolutely right. And so Hayek said that Milton Friedman said it specifically in in terms of you know edu- educational school choice that yeah let the rich experiment and then good methods, good ideas, good techniques will will then come down um, once they've been proven that they're not just fads and fancies. Now, of course, what goes on in a lot of the government schools is very important to note um, it, that they can pursue. Uh, do, you, do you understand what I mean? Fads and fashions they can pursue those things easily without any loss to themselves. Um, so for example, in, in schools in England, we we had a move away from teaching children to read using phonics, which is a tried and tested way. It's not perfect. That's synthetic. been true here in the US as well. Yeah. So a lot of the public schools, a lot of the government schools just completely moved away from that, tried this whole world, whole word learning, other crazy methods. And this would be true because a lot of the influences here of public education, then go and influence schooling in Nigeria and Ghana and India. And so the government schools can try weird and wonderful techniques without caring, really, if they work or not. The same luxury is not available to the local private schools, and that's probably for the better. How has Brian Kaplan's work on the signaling model of education and his book, The Case Against Education, how has that influenced, if at all, your work? It's a very interesting book, The Case Against Education, because, put it in simplistic way, he's basically saying, particularly at the higher education level, and focusing mostly on America, um, at the higher education level, there's no or next to no, no human capital or insignificant amounts of human capital development that is taking place in the universities and the institutions of higher education, all that's already taking place of, of any value, you know, the literacy, the numeracy and so on. And in actual fact, what higher education is doing typically is signaling that the person has the aptitude, the abilities, what, what is the, the things, aptitude abilities, the ability to sit he, still. He breaks work. it down into intelligence, conformity and... I think hardworking or conscientiousness. Perseverance, conscientiousness. That's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. So in, in intelligence, conformity, conscientiousness. So the, those characters are yes, certainly in in, in elementary school, nursery, uh, kindergarten, elementary school, you will have contributed to that. Even perhaps in elementary school, even possibly in high school, but certainly by the time you get to to university, higher education, um, 
there's no more development to be done and it's just signaling if you get to harvard you're signaling differently than if you go to uh, some community college or, or or state university um so i i think there's a lot in his thesis and he he basically um dismisses therefore a lot of what expenditure on even on schooling um he dismisses a lot of that uh, but I, I think the the weaknesses argument, as I try to explain in the book, Really Good Schools, um, is that he's assuming that the state has taken over all or most of schooling, as it has in America. There's only sort of seven percent, I think, of children are in private education. There may be slightly more. So he's assuming that the state has captured this, and I think the argument does not apply in sort of environments like the ones I've been working in, where the majority of kids are actually in private education, where individual parents are making decisions about um, where, where their children should go, and that the whole thing is geared towards a market where human capital development, I'm not saying there's no signaling going on, but human capital development is still important, and um, important even you know as high as you go, and that pe- parents are paying incrementally for that. So, so I, I mean the argument I'm not necessarily putting it particularly well at the moment, but the argument is that Kaplan's argument seems yeah probably right or cl- close to the situation in America. It's a it's not applies true. much less under these circumstances. It applies much less because you. I have think you would. Agenda. I think you would agree to that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I haven't actually asked him that that question, but yeah, he probably would, and that's in a sense the beauty of what we've I've been describing in these countries. For those of us who are oriented to to spontaneous order and the importance of markets, you do undermine lots of the problems that emerge in the the, the public system. But has it influenced my work? Um, no, I don't think it has. But I, I suppose um, it could in the future. This is interesting. And and certainly, so, so so Kaplan's argument, you know, this, this argument has come out from time to time. And there's um, there was an earlier Englishman who wrote a similar similar sort of thesis back in the 1970s. And for the life of me, I've just forgotten his name now. The, the thesis has been there in, in earlier work, and I was aware of it. I was certainly cautious of, you know, just w- worrying that these there was just a a waste, a waste of resources going on in these schools and so on, and in these systems, these private systems. So I was aware of it from earlier work, um, but I don't think it is the case. Um, but it does make, uh, there's a chapter in this book about describing how you could have, you know, even better assessment systems, which did focus only on the human capital development. And, you know, any signaling that came about was was a sort of a epiphenomenon. So, you know, I, I think it's it does point to a, you know, a different ways of doing education. It points to the value of the systems we see. And the, the signaling is not without value, too. I mean, that's an important I mean, sort, sorting people is itself an important function, isn't it? I mean, it's not the whole game and it shouldn't be the whole game. But no. But as I say, so intelligence, you know, well, let's not, let's not get into those sort of debates, but certainly intelligence. <laughs> stabilize around age 12 or 13 however you think it's created so you know so certainly elementary schooling will have an impact there one would one would guess as his family and, and so on and presumably genes too um conscientiousness and um conformity those things will be you know, important in, in different levels of schooling as well so no i'm not saying and and then and signaling that you've got those things is 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 important i'm not saying they're not important at all but in countries which are you know, poor and need more of it. Human capital development is is very important, and one must never lose sight of that. Yeah, no, of course. And I think 
you know, as you say, when you're talking about kids who are particularly at risk of not developing these really basic ground level bits of human capital like literacy, numeracy, or for a lot of these kids learning the English language, which is a hugely marketable skill in a way that learning foreign languages, if you're from Britain or, or the US, learning foreign languages in school is kind of a joke. Um, but if you're from other parts of the world, learning English is not a joke. That's that's serious business. So that that yeah. is serious human capital that should be taken yeah. into account. Yeah. But the human capital is also, you know, deferred gratification. You know, we 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 sort of take it for granted, and there may well be a family or genetic component to it, but nonetheless, there can be training around it as well. You know, I've 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 opened schools, so not only have I been studying schools and researching them and championing these movement, I've also opened a few schools myself in different countries, and you know, going into some incredibly poor communities, the kids don't know how to sit down, <laughs> the kids don't know how to pay attention, the kids don't know how to do, you know, they're, they're literally climbing all over the place, you know, and that sort of, you know, I can, you know, I've seen the need for that sort of disciplined approach in order to make yourself welcomed to the community outside. You know, it's yeah. uh, these very basic things are important and they, they take time to develop. So my, my day job, I work in classes specifically oh. with high needs, at-risk kids with behavioral excesses and mm -hmm. deficits and stuff like that. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's some really basic readiness skills. And the yeah, the ability to sit down and pay attention is uh, you take it for granted until it's not there. Exactly. Yeah, very true. You mentioned Milton Friedman earlier. I wonder if you could say a little bit about I don't know if he invented the concept, but he made famous the idea of school vouchers or what's today called school choice. And that is the direction a lot of more free market people go when they when they're pushing educational reform. But it's it's also it's not without its controversy, even amongst free market types. Plenty of them are quite anti vouchers. Can you say a little bit about what they are and, and your thoughts on them? Yes. So so, so Milton Friedman. Yeah, he, he probably didn't. He probably didn't invent the idea. I think there were a few sort of philosophical and um, social reformer sort of ideas before him but certainly in his 1955 paper the role of government in education he set out this idea of vouchers and he repeated it again in the book capitalism freedom and the basic philosophy or sorry his his theoretical background was there are externalities of education particularly in a democracy you do need people to be educated to a certain level therefore he almost went straight away to this but you know the assumption is without the state these levels won't be reached, so therefore you need the government to intervene. But please have the government intervention only in terms of funding, so through a voucher. Don't let government provide or do anything else apart from funding. So thus the idea of the education voucher was born. More recently in America, the school choice movement, and I call it school choice with a capital S and a capital C, I think, in the book, which in other words is top-down government initiatives to push additional choice. I call the spontaneous movement, the grassroots roots movement that I've been cataloging, I call it school choice with a small s and a small c to illustrate its sort of spontaneity. Um, but nonetheless, the school choice Amer movement in America now has moved on a bit from vouchers and now they're very excited by educational savings accounts, ESAs. And these are very much where I think they're I think they've been passed in nine or ten states now, and um, where the parent of opts out of the, the public schools get something in their educational savings account. I think it's probably five thousand dollars possibly a year. And they can use it, depending on the state, they can use it on private school fees, but they could even use it on 
you know, an overseas trip to, to Paris if it was seen as of educational value, depending on how strict the states are. But the basic point is, though, Milton Friedman and all the followers of him to date in the school choice movement, capital S, capital C, they agree with the assumption that Milton Friedman made, which was that you do need, there are externalities, there are neighborhood effects of education. If the state doesn't fund it, it will be not provided or underprovided, only the rich will provide it. And, um, and therefore, you need the state to intervene with either vouchers or ESAs or whatever. Now, you see, from my work, the fundamental and obvious flaw in that argument is that that middle assumption is clearly wrong. It's clearly wrong. You, there are neighborhood effects, externalities. There are also private benefits of schooling, but there are public benefits. Um, but clearly, people will provide it without the state. You know, the majority of, of parents do want this enough for their children and will pay for it. And therefore, the whole argument for government then stepping in with vouchers and ESAs and so on is not valid. Funnily enough, Milton Friedman realized the same. Now, not from my work. He he died before I was able to. I would love to have met him. And he would I think he would have loved the work going on in developing countries. I'm sure he would have. Yeah. But what he read about was the parallel work from E.G. West, Professor Edwin George West of Carleton University and a few others, but particularly the work of E.G. West, which showed that what I've been finding in developing countries was also true in Victorian England. What did he write? Uh, Education and the Industrial Revolution? Is that, uh, what that was his major book and his sort of more popular book is Education and the State. But those those two books are definitely worth looking at. And, and, and well, my own personal story is I went into the slums in India with a hunch about what I might find, low-cost private schools, because I'd read the work of E.G. West. And what he'd found in the slums of Victorian England, I had a hunch I might find them, and I did. But what was happening in Victorian England was that the Newcastle Commission is perhaps the best place to start looking here. The Newcastle Commission reported, I think, 1861. Um, uh, the report was uh, found, the, the research, really thorough research was done in 1858 to around 1861, looking at a, a, a stratified sample of communities across England and Wales. And it came up with a remarkable result totally unexpected, I think, to the people, that um, these figures are rough, that 95% of kids were in school for uh, an average of six years. The actual, actual figures were 5.7 and so on. But anyway, 95% of kids were in school for six years, and they were in roughly three types of school, excuse me, three types of schools. Um, mostly church, but religious schools, occasional synagogues, uh, Jewish schools, but church schools, religious schools, philanthropic schools, and then what we would call now, I would call now low-cost private schools, but that were called then uh, dame schools, proprietor schools, for-profit schools. There was this, and they were they were in a, that the, the, the Newcastle Commission found a huge proportion of children were in these these different type of schools, the low-cost private schools, that I, 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 as I call them today. So that was, in, that was incredible. And, and Milton Friedman read this research, and there's similar research done in, I think, New York um, and, and Massachusetts before government got involved, showing that you didn't need compulsory education laws or funding in order for you to get near compulsion, uh, near universal provision. 
And Milton Friedman read this work. He he was um he he he, he talked to Eddie West a lot. Eddie West, and in I think there's a footnote in the 1982 Capitalism Freedom where he said, "I changed my mind about this." In actual fact, you don't need vouchers in order to meet you, get universal provision. The poor, everyone, is capable of doing themselves. You might need targeted vouchers. You might need some assistance for those, just as you have welfare stamps or whatever you do in America, mm-hmm. for those who will not feed or clothe their children. Most parents do feed and clothe their children. You don't need universal feeding and clothing vouchers. You need targeted, and the same he decided was true in education. And disappointingly for me, he then continued in this footnote, he says, um, but for the present purposes, we will continue to support and, you know, champion and agitate for vouchers. But these are now not the end, but they are, we see them as a step towards the eventual full privatization, as it were, grassroots privatization of education. So it's it's very interesting. I talk about this in the book, the the, the really good schools. I, I follow his argument, and I find it convincing, as you'd expect. And so I, I think actually Milton Friedman is not, you know, is not as typically supposed the the, the fan of vouchers as or educational savings account as an end in themselves. He just saw them as a stepping stone too. That was it's, always my impression. I mean, I, I think every time Milton Friedman made an argument that went above and beyond the very minimal night watchman state and argued for government action. It was always, I think, with a little bit of mourning, a little bit of sadness, like, I suppose this is necessary, but I wish it weren't. So I I don't see him as like attached to it as this great positive good. No. And and, and the 1982 footnote, which is referenced in my book, you'll see he explicitly says why he, you know, why he's, has that element of mourning, you know, because he doesn't he does realize that that you can do this without the state. And 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 so so back to my position. I mean my position in the book is very skeptical about vouchers and you know perhaps I'd be less skeptical about educational savings accounts because they seem to be have the potential to be slightly more flexible than vouchers. But nonetheless I I might see them as actually, you know, if I'm taking this up purest angle and looking at you know, school choice in America, and so I, I could actually see them be quite dangerous and quite harmful because they you know, they're hard to get hold of. They're hard, they're hard to initiate in states. But once you initiate them, you might think, well, that's that's all we need do. And I don't like the idea of the state, you know, taking money from us in taxes and then saying, well, here's a little bit of it back to educate your children. I don't see it's necessary, and I don't see it's at all desirable. Well, Corey DeAngelis has been kind of like a one-man voucher lobby in the United States, and it seems like he's had a lot of success and the movement's gaining some steam. So I, it'll be interesting to see what the direction of it is, if it if it ends up taking a dangerous turn or if it ends up being like a, a kind of end-of-the-line sign for a lot of activists who say, okay, we, we, made, we made it this far, no need to do anything else. I, I'm curious to see how it goes. I, I don't yes. really have a settled view on it. Yeah. I just started doing a little bit of work in America um, do you want to hear about that at all? Is that uh, of interest sure. to you? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, it was based on this realization that just as historically there were probably the schools in America, but certainly in England, certainly um, elsewhere in the world, um, and now there's this burgeoning movement of I'm calling it low cost private education. So in America, there seems to be now this growing movement of 
a range of alternatives. They, people call them homeschool academies, hybrid schools, micro schools. Sometimes they just call them no-cost private schools. But there is this burgeoning movement, and I've um, I've managed to raise um, a little bit of funding in order to, well, perhaps write another another sequel to the well to the beautiful tree. Uh, the working title is the beautiful tree in America, where I want to see. Well, I, I you know I, I shall visit a number of these schools and get a sense of this movement. Again, the how good are they is important, but again, you can't do standardized tests. Maybe you need parental views on what they're seeking from schooling and how they schooling used using the term loosely, because of course some part of this is the unschooling movement. Um but I, I'm I'm very excited what's happening in America. But already my sort of very preliminary investigations, I've talked to some people who are doing homeschooling or homeschooling academy. Um Incidentally, homeschooling academy can be run for five days a week and the kids are homeschooled at weekends, but they come to homeschool academy the rest of the time. Quite a few of the parents or proprietors or whatever I've spoken to are against accepting vouchers or educational savings accounts because they're afraid that, you know, he who pays the piper calls the tune. And if governments get involved in these, they will surely, even if they're not now, they will surely regulate and eventually overregulate. And that way lies disaster for the sector, or at least inhibition. Oh yeah, so I'm very interested. Yeah, I understand that concern. Um, yes. So you have uh, uh, a long-term vision of what uh, a healthier educational environment might look, might look like. W- what do you see as maybe the most important first initial policy steps in moving in that direction? So I wouldn't see it as a policy step, except as a negative policy step. So the policy steps that are important to me are to deregulate or to... That's what I have in mind. What what do you see as the first important steps in terms of uh, (laughs) removing policy? Yeah. Okay. So, so, uh, and it would, it depends on state by state and, and, and so on and it's country by country, but certainly in the countries that I've been working in most until now, the regulations on teacher, teacher certification, teacher um, teacher salaries and so on uh, are hugely important to get rid of regulations on the size of the playground and so on in the schools are hugely important to get rid of in this country in America my guess is the regulations yeah probably on teacher quality teacher certification will still be important to remove regulations saying that private schools or these type of schools that we're talking about have to get their curriculum checked or approved by the school districts um all those things are important to remove but but as a counter to that the the most important thing that i see if if we are going to move towards a future which does sort of capture the benefits of the spontaneous order the market more then we we've got to just be able to encourage entrepreneurs to get into the space and whether that's through this sort of discussion inspiring entrepreneurs and investors to get in there my book um, videos and so on on this um, or whether it's uh, whether it is government regulation which allows them to come into that space, those to me are the important important things. And I, you know, I I'm incredibly optimistic about the way in which entrepreneurs are coming into this space already, um, and the, the way that if they're successful and people from outside see how successful they are, and the public schools continue to be for many many children and many parents very undesirable, then this sector will grow. And I I find that very exciting, a very exciting prospect. What are the strongest counter arguments, do you think, to your position? What what objections keep you up at night? Well, the the objections would have been in 
kept me up in 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 the past. I, I think they are pretty well counted. Um, actually, they would be based on those the seven features that any alternative sector must have. But you know, um, people say, well, what about the poor? You know, what about low-income families? What about the less privileged? And my work has shown that, by and large, families better cater for themselves than if the government tries to step in. My guess is that would be true in America too. There's likely to be a small minority, as I said earlier, who um, cannot benefit in this way, but they can surely be, that they can be targeted assistance in the way that we, we target those children whose parents won't feed and clothe them. That's the sort of assistance I see that could be there. So I think that that's that's the that's the main you know in a sense, you know, you asked me at the beginning about my my own sort of personal progression, and what I didn't say, and you know, I, I was trying to speak quickly, but nonetheless, um, I, I'd become an expert on private education that, through my PhD thesis. I'd become an expert on private education, and yet I knew private education was about the rich and the privileged, you know, and that that was that made me very unhappy because. I somehow felt my life should be about serving the poor, but you know, people like us when we're talking, we should feel that any solution we've got should, you know, enable the poor to do better. It's not just about the rich and the elite. So my my life was um you know, I had this terrible disjunction in my life, you know, that I was an expert on private education, private education's for the rich. And so when I found my first private schools for the poor, um, I suddenly realized that um you know, the different parts of my life could fit together. And, and um, you know, it was an epiphany moment for me. But in terms of your question now, that's the question that always kept me up night. You know, private education, what about the poor? Now, I'm satisfied that there are, private education is better for the poor than the alternatives in the countries I've looked at. But my guess is this will be true in America too. Well, I'm very much looking forward to to that. So, so this is an upcoming project you have. You gave the working title. Do you have a rough uh, timeline for this? Well, I, uh, I I'm now I, I am the president of a university. The vice chancellor in, in American language is the president of a small university, small private university. So my time is less less uh, flexible than it used to be. But I I do hope to be able to do the field work. Um, you know, a couple of trips across to America by sort of March next year, March April next year and then get writing. So yeah, this could well be out in, what's what we now, 23. This could well be out in 25, this new book. That would be nice, 2025, The Beautiful Tree in America. And I'm looking forward, because again, as, as was true for the other book, I didn't know what I would find, but I'm excited to see what there might be there. This will be very different. It, it, it certainly, I'm not expecting to find 75% of kids in these schools, but I'm expecting to find you know, significant minority of kids who are demonstrating something really interesting about education this contested area of education that has you know will make us all think differently about education and the sort of societies we want to live in can you recommend any book that you think would complement this book especially well taking for granted that the beautiful tree would complement it as well <laughs> in terms of what books there are i mean i i like going back to some of the past books and i do recommend reading the Milton Friedman, Capitalism, Freedom, the chapter on education. I do recommend reading Hayek on education and then reading E.G. West on Education and the State, Education and the Industrial Revolution. They're very important books. Um, and with those as your background, you can cater for a, a lot of what's around at the moment. But I did hear the other day, I did hear the other day of a really fascinating book, which 
somehow could fit into this. And it's a book by someone called, I think, James Anderson. And it's a book published in 1988 called The Education of Blacks in the South, 1860 to 1935. And apparently, you know, I've got to read the book first, um, but apparently it shows that upon emancipation, many former black slaves created schools in their communities. And this was actually, a, in a way, a forerunner or, you know, the parallel to what I've seen developing around the world. The, my thesis really is, or my you know, the statement I have, or my law or my rule, um, is that educating children is as important to parents as feeding and clothing and housing children. This is this is a, my, my sort of philosophy. And I, my guess is that book from the American South will is, illustrate the same thing that I illustrate in really good schools and beautiful tree um, and that Eddie West illustrated back looking at Victorian England. Um, the service to educate is not something that government needs to needs to bring about. We don't sit around idly by until government gets involved in this area. No, it's absolutely fundamental. Just as we feed, clothe and house our children, we want to educate them too. And that impulse that should be embraced, not as it is now with the state coming in, pushing it down and saying, parents, you don't know about education. We know about education in the public sector. You don't know about it. No. We know about it. Parents know about it. It's a fundamental impulse. Let it flourish. Let it grow. Let it uh, be nurtured. Where can people find you if they want to keep up with your work? So I, I have a I have a website. I do tweet at James underscore Tooley and uh, look out for my books and, and articles. I think they're the best way for now. Yeah. Beautiful. My guest today has been Professor James Tooley and his book once again is Really Good Schools, Global Lessons for High-Caliber, Low-Cost Education. James, thanks so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. It's been wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.